Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 234. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 234 you're listening to. My guest today is Eric Kunal. Eric is a composer, sound designer, educator. He's uh, the co-director of the music technology program over at Foothill College here in the Bay Area. And uh, he's also the director of partner programs for Next Point Training and also teaches at Pyramine in San Francisco. And he's got a bit of a past to him, which we're going to talk about. Not a sordid past or anything like that, but you know, he's got a past. He's got some experience, we'll say. Eric is an old friend. I've known Eric almost 20 years. And Eric, I must point out, uh, being the director of partner programs at Next Point Training is the reason the Working Class Audio Journal series is in existence. Because he called me one day and he said... uh, have you thought about doing a book based on the Working Class Audio podcast? And I said, that's funny you say that, because actually I had been thinking about that and I was going to self-publish. And he goes, don't do that. Let my company do it. We can do We can do a great job. And turns out they did a great job. And uh, the book is out, of course, as you know. I'll put a link in the show notes. And that's really due in large part because of Eric Kunal. So Eric Kunal coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups. Let's talk about selling gear. So in the spirit of diversification, which, you know, I talk about all the time in creating different pillars of, you know, income so that, you know, if you lose money or lose business in one area, it doesn't collapse your whole world. Uh, One of the things that I'd like to talk to you about is the concept of creating a income stream based on gear sales. And... You know, for some of you, that's going to be like, oh, my God, I don't want to do that. But for some of you, that totally is an interesting concept. And I'm speaking on it kind of uh, with a a fresh attitude because uh, over the weekend, my 10-year-old and I, I said, hey, let's let's go to one of these estate sales just kind of randomly. And we stopped by this house and lo and behold, there was all of this audiophile gear. some stuff that was kind of cool that we were interested in keeping. We found some some nice headphones, uh, but there was some stuff there that just didn't interest me in keeping, and I knew it would sell. So um, we made an offer on some of this gear, and the long story short about it is, is we probably got, I'm going to say conservatively, like $3,000 worth of gear for... I'm gonna say 80 bucks. Yeah, that's what. That's right. Because he said we went back. Twi- we went back two times. Fifty dollars was spent the first time. Thirty dollars the second time. So we're gonna list all that, and I'm gonna give my 10 year old a cut of the proceeds because he actually is the one that had the cash on him when we walked in the door, and I didn't. So think about this because there's a lot of different places to sell online. Get the gear, clean it up. Take some nice pictures, and uh, if you get a chance to test it, that would be ideal. It doesn't have to be audiophile gear for certain. I mean, I was looking for I was looking for pro audio gear. Who is not looking for the magic? You know, oh, my granddad had this microphone from the '50s that says Neumann. Maybe uh, 
can we get 50 bucks for it? <laughs> I know we're all looking for that magic unicorn. But uh, visit some estate sales, go to some garage sales, keep your eyes peeled, and uh, be sensible about what you think might sell. Because uh, not everything's going to sell. And be careful not to get yourself in too deep financially. Um, you know, have your phone on you, be aware of what stuff costs. You know, do a little Googling while you're there so you can get a sense of what's happening. And then... Uh, Turn that stuff around and sell it. Now, if you, you know, make a day every weekend, you stop around garage sales or uh, estate sales, which we seem to have an immense amount here. There's just an older population that is dying off and the kids are left with these messes. In, in this case, that's what we encountered, a house that was just wrecked, full of stuff, and everybody was just so overwhelmed that we got a really good deal. And um, yeah. You're not going to find all good deals. Some, In some cases, you're going to find people who know exactly what the stuff is and they're going to want to get every dollar out of it. So you have to leave yourself some room. Uh, you know, it's fine to pay, pay a fair price for something, but you got to leave yourself room to add your markup on it and then post it on whatever service you're going to use and know that they're going to take a cut. So you have to be really kind of uh, pragmatic about it. You can't, you know, think, oh my God, we could sell this for, you know, a thousand bucks. When in reality, maybe you could get 400 for it when all is said and done, once all the expenses are covered and everybody takes their cut, et cetera, et cetera. So keep it in mind, it's it's a possibility and uh, it's kind of fun. The, the thrill of the hunt, I could definitely see has bitten my 10 year old. He was just like, oh my gosh, how much can we sell this for? So he was on it, it was, it was insane how excited he got. Anyhow, that's uh, that's my rant about that. So if you're looking for an income stream in, in the spirit of diversification, think about selling gear. And also, maybe you could start with some of the gear you have that you don't use and uh, take it from there. So selling gear. Check it out. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com.
I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. That's it. Let's get on with it. Let's have a chat with Eric Kunal here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Eric. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. For the audience, Eric and I go pretty far back. We met originally, I think we met originally at Cutting Edge Audio, maybe prior to that, because weren't you working for Digidesign back then? No, no. I, my first gig in the Bay Area was Cutting Edge. Oh, that's right. Okay. So that's where I first met you. You took over for Matt Donner at Cutting Edge. Right. Matt Donner's a former guest, so I'll put a link in the show notes to his interview so you can kind of get the skinny on that. But I had worked at Cutting Edge, left. Eric started working there after I had left, and that's where we had become friends. That was how many years ago? That must have been 2000. Wow, so almost 20 years ago. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah, I started there in January of 2000. And Eric and I met up actually last night. We were at a 25th anniversary party for Cutting Edge and, and just Cutting Edge Audio or Cutting Edge Audio and Video Group, whatever you want to call it, is kind of a an old Bay Area institution as far as if you bought pro audio gear and you were kind of in the know. You went there, you went to generally Jeff Briss, and Jeff was like the sales guy to all the big people around the Bay Area, the Grateful Dead, Skywalker, Metallica, anything remotely big. Yeah. You'd go to Jeff. But even if you were you were small fries too, you, you could go to Jeff, single, you know, right. small studio owner, et cetera. Well, let's go back like we do with everybody. Also, I, I'm failing to mention here, Eric was instrumental in the Working Class Audio Journal coming to light because I was thinking about publishing a book and he said, no, don't do that on your own. Let me and my partner, Frank Cook, do it at uh, Next Point Publishing. Is that how you remember it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Frank and I were thinking about just kind of brainstorming about ideas outside of the usual stuff that we do, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I don't remember if you called me or I called you. You called me because yeah. you said, do you want to be part of a book about Studio One? And I said, honestly, no. Ah. I said, that that doesn't interest me at all. <laughs> I said, because yeah, I'm yeah. back in Pro Tools anyway. And then you said, well, and what about, what about a working class audio book? And I said, funny, you should say that. Yeah, so, that's right. You've got a really varied background that, touches on many different aspects of the world of audio. 
and it takes a look at it from different angles. So let's just go back in time. Where did you grow up? I, I grew up in Ohio, actually, a little town called Centerville, which is outside Dayton, Ohio, which at the time I thought was the middle of nowhere. Nothing interesting was ever happening. Of course, now I come to find out there's some you know pretty influential bands from Dayton and, and that sort of general area. But of course, I didn't know about that stuff when I was a kid. You know. Yeah, you just thought it was boring. Yeah, there wasn't much going on. I mean, I'd go to the local jazz club. You had to travel somewhere to go see any real concerts, mostly. Yeah, I grew up there, started playing piano when I was, I don't know, five or six years old. Yeah. Spent most of my early childhood identifying as a piano and keyboard player. Mm-hmm. And as you may recall, back in those days, music technology, like the things we think of now as music technology, was pretty much the domain of keyboard players because yeah. there was no digital audio. I mean, it was all... I'm thinking in terms of like home studios. Yeah. You know, it was it, it was all MIDI based. Yeah. There are a lot of keyboards that had sequencing built into them. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then and then computers obviously started becoming huge for sequencing, but it was still many years before digital audio was happening. Where did you go to college? So I went to Oberlin College near Cleveland, Ohio. Mm-hmm specifically the Oberlin Conservatory, Music Conservatory. And they had an electronic music program back when that was you know, pretty unusual. Uh, it was not commercially focused at all. What, what would sort of be thought of as classical electronic music, hmm. you know, experimental academic electronic music, which is really closely aligned with, you know, sort of modern classical music composition. And yeah, I was, like I said, I was a synth person. I was into samplers. I had a four track you know, and it just seemed like a logical thing to pursue in college. And then I found this program, you know, it was in Ohio. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't like I thought, oh, I, I want to go somewhere close to home, you know, but it, it happened to be about three hours from my house. So I could still drive home and see my family and stuff like that. But also it turned out it was the conservatory there is one of the top conservatories. You've got Juilliard and, you know, that kind of level. And then Oberlin is right up there. Huh. So great musicians. And then this funny little program called Tamara technology and music and related arts. And we were in the basement, like literally in the basement of the conservatory. (laughs) But they had started that program, I want to say in the 70s or 80s. So very academic, very rigorous in terms of learning about synthesis, some amount of audio engineering, although that was not a huge part of it. Studio recording and, and that kind of thing wasn't a huge part of it because they weren't really trying to turn out people with sort of vocational training. Mm -hmm. It was very academic. So a lot of those students would go on to do a master's or a PhD in composition or, you know, something like that. Where did audio enter into your world as kind of a focus? Yeah. Okay. So when I was finishing at Oberlin, I knew I wanted to go into a master's program. I basically, I didn't want to have to like get a job or, you know, work or something like that. I loved being in school. I loved college. Like I probably would have just stayed. And in a sense, I kind of have, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get, get to, back that. to that. But <laughs> yeah, but I looked at graduate programs. My mom has a PhD in psychology. And so from a very young age, I thought, well, I'll definitely get a graduate degree. You know, it's kind of funny. I mean, I suppose that's true of people who have parents with graduate degrees. Right. And what's funny is I thought I was going to go to medical school or something like that. And then not to get into the whole long roundabout story, but my father passed away when I was 19 and the hospital experience was so traumatizing that I decided, yeah, there's there's no way I'm going to be a doctor or ha- do anything that has to do with, you know, hospitals and stuff like that. 
So I really doubled down on music and I was always into music technology. I didn't know what the career would be. I loved that. And Oberlin gave me an opportunity to do a degree in that. I still didn't know if I would pursue that as a career. So when I was looking at grad schools, I decided, okay, if I'm going to make a go of this, I've got to get out of the Midwest because there just won't be career opportunities there for me, which is maybe an overgeneralization. But, you know, I mean, I think it was relatively true that if I wanted to go into recording or scoring or, you know, any of those kinds of things, I needed to get somewhere where there was a market for that. Right. Did your dad's death have any impact on your decision-making for your career or your life? Yeah, I think I did. I think I did. I think I was in college. It was my fall of my sophomore year. And I was still thinking about med school and, and things like that. I really thought that the music, even studying music as intensively as I was, was just sort of a way to have an enjoyable college experience and do something I was passionate about. But then I was going to have to get back to the real world. I kind of, even when I was a teenager, I thought, well, maybe I'll major in music, but then I'm going to go to law school or med school or something. I I, I don't know. And my dad was a musician, not professionally, Mm. but was a pretty accomplished trumpet player, was a self-taught piano player, could play, was just really musical and could sing and dance. Uh, was Was a dance instructor with my mom for many years. So it's funny, we, I didn't think of us as a creative family, but I was around music all the time. And I don't know, it really, it really struck me. After he passed away, I thought, you know what? I think it was one of those like, you know, I'm only going to live this one life, almost a sense of mortality, something like that. And I thought, I'm going to do something with music. I'm not going to do this other thing. I think the clarity came from realizing that the path I had thought I was on was about money, was about status. Do you know what I mean? Upward mobility. Yeah. And, and making sure that I wouldn't struggle for money and, and also the prestige of being a doctor, being a lawyer, you know, like that kind of thing. I was around people like that a lot because my mom was a psychologist. It just hit me. I was like, I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to do this thing that I, that I love and not just put that on the back burner and then pursue a career for the sake of having an easier path in life. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, it was, it it had a huge impact on me. And then to this day, I think in terms of finances and, you know, all kinds of things that were part of the fallout of my dad dying at that point and seeing what my mom went through and stuff like that. I definitely still have issues with money and being very conservative, which has served me reasonably well. I'm not, I'm not saying that that was something, some kind of terrible thing. And I think 19, man, I, I had friends, a few who had lost a parent even younger than that. And now that I'm in my 40s, you can sort of see how that impacted you. You you can't see it when you're close to it. Right. You know, but many years later I can see it now. And it's pretty clear that I made some decisions based on wanting to pursue something I was passionate about. But in the long run, it still impacted me in a in a few other ways. So anyway, I made that decision, really enjoyed the last couple of years of college, and set, and I only looked at graduate programs in California. <laughs> that was my thing. I considered going to McGill in Montreal for a split second because I was quite interested in possibly pursuing a Tonmeister type of program. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I was recording a lot of classical music at Oberlin. That was one of my work-study jobs, doing orchestral recordings, opera recordings, and then the everyday little kind of junior and senior recitals. I did tons of that. In a sense, that was my real education at Oberlin, was was doing that stuff. There's an interesting parallel to you and former WCA guest Brendan Duffy. 
Uh-huh. You both lost your parents at a similar age, your dads in particular, and you considered doing a Tone Meister type program. Brendan did one at the BAMP sitter. Uh-huh. I find that very fascinating in the two of you, and I'll put a link in the show notes to Brendan's interview. But you decided not to do that, ultimately. I Well, you know, it's funny, it, it, the things, the way you make decisions when you're 22. You know, I look back on it. I, I think it was a solid decision. Mm-hmm. But part of it was that I couldn't imagine doing winters in Montreal <laughs> after after doing, growing up in the Midwest, Dayton wasn't that bad. I mean, it's pretty cold in the winter, but Oberlin is right near Lake Erie. And- after doing several years of that, I thought, I got to get out of here. Yeah, man. And I went and toured schools in my last year at Oberlin. I went and toured schools and I went to LA and I went to the Bay Area. And I distinctly remember January when it was probably minus 20 at Oberlin, I flew into Burbank. And you know how in Burbank, you get off both ends of the plane. They'll put the stairs out at the front and the back of the plane. At least sometimes they do. And so I distinctly remember going off the back of the plane and thinking that was the coolest thing ever, right? <laughs> Stepping down the stairs, I'm sure it was at least 70 degrees or something. Easily. And blue skies. Well, okay, maybe it was a little smoggy, but I don't remember it that way. And I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> like, why have I spent my whole life in the Midwest? Then I went and I visited CalArts in LA mm-hmm. and just fell in love with that place. Went up to the Bay Area, visited Mills College yeah. in Oakland. That was my second choice. The programs were quite similar. But what attracted me to CalArts was that it was all arts and they had the sort of five different schools in there. And I, I really, even when I was at Oberlin, I really loved collaboration, mm. like seeking out collaborators in dance and in theater, which you might not really think about, but I did a lot of music and even sound design for theater performances and stuff like that. Yeah. So CalArts was it for me. I mean, I knew I wanted, that was that was where I wanted to go. And yeah, I, I got into the master's program there and that's how I ended up in California. Yeah. Blue skies, sunny weather. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Screw that snow business. Having been in Northern California now for, for about 20 years, you know, you see generally there's there's this vibe up here that Southern California is just not as cool, kind of cheesy, sort of focused on that kind of mass market entertainment. And, you know, I don't know what it is, but man, that never bothered me. After coming from Ohio, I just thought LA was the coolest thing. And, and you know what? I, I loved the energy. Some people, they go to LA and they go to a restaurant and the waiter comes to the table and you end up having a discussion with them and they say, well, you know, I wait tables, but I'm really th- this. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really an, an actor. actor. I'm really an actor. I mean, that's the cliche, but it might also be, I'm really a costume designer. I'm really a, a writer, you know, or whatever it was. I loved that energy. Actually, I still, to this day, I miss that energy in LA. And sure, most of those people are never going to have any great success because that's just how the business works. But I loved that energy in LA because I was coming from the Midwest, man. Nobody would come up and say, well, I'm really a director, you know, when you were at Denny's yeah. or whatever, I, I, you know. I'll be honest, as, as an early 20-something, I was not into LA and it took being, you know, in my my late 30s and, and 40s to have an appreciation for it. Now, I love going down there. Because people are trying to do stuff. They're trying yeah. to they're trying to do something. Whereas if you go to some kind of middle of nowhere diner, the waiter or waitress that comes to the table, they're just they don't have a lot going on. And and I can only speculate what their life is like and I get a little depressed thinking about it. Not to diminish their life in any way, but 
It's just yeah. not, it's not for me. No, if you're bitten by this bug of wanting creativity or being creative or, or, or in some cases for people like us, fostering creativity in, in others, whether that's as an engineer or as a, a teacher, you know, but once, once you've had that feeling inside you and maybe, maybe people have that from a really young age. I mean, maybe I did, I don't, I don't know, but once you have that, I think you sort of seek that out. You know, you want to be around people who are also like that. So you went to Cal arts and how did you wind up at, at cutting edge? Yeah. Okay. So I went to CalArts. I was still studying even more experimental, like left field electronic music and electroacoustic music, which is still my, my passion creatively, even though there's, there's no commercial market for, for any of that kind of thing. Studied with awesome faculty there. Mark Trail, first and foremost, who passed away a couple years ago. Morton Sabotnik, who as close to a household name as you have in that field. And Tom Erb, who you may know, who developed SoundHack in the 90s, the little application that could do all the kind of file conversions and stuff. Oh, okay. He taught there as well and ran the studios. I think he's at UC San Diego still. So a lot of my friends were film in the film program. Mm -hmm. And I started getting involved with films, acting in student films, not well, but just being a part of student films, doing a little bit of audio work, you know, that kind of thing. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And then as I was approaching graduation, it was only a two-year program, I started looking for just kind of exploring what my career possibilities would be. Well, being in LA, film sound seemed like that's, I mean, this is the obvious thing to do down here. Right. Got an internship at a, a studio down there, audio post-production studio called Dane Tracks, which at the time was kind of transitioning from being maybe a slightly smaller player on the scene to suddenly becoming this really influential studio because they were working on the first Matrix film when I was there. Oh, yeah. Now I was an intern, but that really, I got bitten by the bug big time of sound design for film and, and TV and, and whatnot. Then what just kind of fell into my lap, you remember like Usenet forums and stuff like that? Sure. A guy reached out to me on the Super Collider, which is like a sound design development tool, kind of like Max, you know, and, and there's a bunch of other ones, PD and Chuck and C sound and stuff. I was on the form for that because I obsessively used Super Collider while I was at Oberlin and CalArts. And a guy reached out to me and said, hey, I'm running the audio department at a game studio in Calabasas. I didn't know where Calabasas was, but you know, West, West LA. Hey, you should come out and we'll hang out and talk about Super Collider. And next thing I know, they hired me before I'd even graduated. Doesn't happen much now, but remember there were no game programs. Like you didn't come out of school with a degree in game audio or probably anything having to do with games. Right. So hired me. I worked there for about a year. We worked a pretty grueling schedule. And during that time, I was going to the Bay Area quite a bit. I had a bunch of friends up there, including Oberlin friends, CalArts friends. And I was playing gigs at little weird venues doing experimental electronic music, just kind of oddball stuff. And I totally fell in love with San Francisco. This is a city. Like, this is a real, you don't need a car here. Just fell in love with it. So then I saw a post from Jeff Briss on the DigiDesign user conference which by then was like a happening place to hang out. The duck. The duck, yeah. The DUC. And I saw a post from Jeff Briss in the careers area there. And I was working on games and I was pretty happy on games, but I was getting burnt because, you know, it was my first job and I was doing 60 hour weeks and I'd stay late just to get a free sandwich because I was broke, you know, from having student loans and stuff like that. And so Jeff posts this thing and I replied and they said, hey, if you're willing to come up here, we're not going to fly you up because we don't know who you are. 
But if you're willing to come up here, we'll interview you for this gig because you could be good. It sounds like you might have the skills for this thing. Hmm. So I went up there, I interviewed, and you know how those guys are, like the four of them just sort of piled on me on this interview. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And and for the audience at that point in time, Cutting Edge Audio was four partners Yeah, and all with somewhat focused personalities, we'll say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love those guys, but I didn't know them. They sat me down on the couch, you know, in the little like waiting area uh-huh. and the four of them just came at me. And, you know, I knew there was a lot I didn't know. I, I didn't know how much I, I didn't know. I thought I knew a lot about Pro Tools and stuff like that. Turns out I didn't know that much, but I built rigs. I'd had my own Pro Tools rig since 95. I maxed out a credit card and got one. <laughs> I don't know. Went up there, talked with Jeff and Tom and Brian and Sig and I guess they were sufficiently impressed to bring me in. They were really moving into video, really hard moving into video. And they needed someone to really take over being kind of the lead support person for audio. And audio meant really 98% of it was Pro Tools. Yep. I mean, that was their business. So that's what they built their business on. Back in that time, as you probably recall, DigiDesign really protected those regions. And so they basically had a monopoly on San Francisco and Marin, maybe maybe the East Bay as well. That's right. If you were going to buy a Pro Tools rig in the area, yeah. you'd buy it most often from cutting edge. If you were shopping for a mix system, mm-hmm. I was there during the transition from mix to HD. They were literally the only dealer in that area. Yep. You had to go to San Jose, I think, to find another Pro Tools dealer yep. for the Pro products. That's right. Man, it was trial by fire. I mean, I would get calls from Skywalker Ranch. They'd ask me some question about some issue they were having with synchronization. (laughs) And I would just, yeah, man. And I have to say, uh, working closely with SIG and working with the dealer support people at, at Digi, man, I learned fast. I learned a ton of stuff. When we transitioned to HD, I mean, here's just an example of what it was like there at that time. When the transition to HD happened, I think there was maybe a month or I built a hundred HD rigs for Skywalker Ranch. Oh yeah. And once again, just explanation for the audience, when Skywalker Sound, which if you don't know what that is, basically it's George Lucas's part of his empire. When Skywalker Sound wants to do something and make a big changeover, let's say they're going to change Pro Tools rigs. They're not just buying like two or three Pro Tools rigs. They're buying right. what, a hundred and, and sometimes more. I may be misremembering the number because that sounds like kind of a big round, perfect number to just throw out there, (laughs) but it was a lot. I would have, yeah, I think it was the G3 era, maybe the G4 era. And I would just have them lined up in our little lab, our little tech lab there. I'd have, I'd open like 20 machines at a time, get out 20 sets of mix cards or, or HD cards, get out all the 192s and just assembly line down because we were still, I think we were still installing plugin authorizations off of floppies and stuff like that. So you could stage them. I could be building this one while I was installing plugins on that one and you know, so on. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. 
So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So I, I got really deep into post. I really loved the challenges, the synchronization. I started working on a bunch of independent films, PBS shows and stuff like that. And that actually was also quite helpful in developing my understanding of synchronization and post-production workflow and stuff like that. Now, you did have a, like, a, a nice, I think this is at the time you had this house in Berkeley and you were, yeah. you had this studio. I remember you yeah. had all these Genelex, you had like a 5-1 Genelex setup. Yeah. Still have it. Still have it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm finally just going to make the move and because I've had this, I've moved for the first time in 18 years. I remember you were getting into stuff that I was just like, I don't know anything about this. (laughs) Well, and I had worked on games too, you know, so I had that little bit of post background from school and from working at Dane Tracks and I'd been working intensively on games, including, you know, there's a, there's an element of post-production in games too, as, as you know, hooked up with film, the film arts foundation. Did you ever, did you ever do anything with film arts? No, but I know of them. Yeah. They were on ninth street, right near cutting edge. I'd have lunch with those guys. I'd go over and of course... Uh, what was funny is I would teach an introductory post-production class. And this was maybe my first teaching experience outside of school. And the people would be so overwhelmed, they would just hire me to do the sound of the films. (laughs) (laughs) So for the time I was at Cutting Edge, I was almost constantly working on films in, in the background. Really small budgets, but I didn't need to make a whole lot of money. I got really good at ADR. I was doing an ADR workflow in my house that I think rivaled what you could do at the big post studios in terms of the speed and the quality. Did you visit that studio? Yeah, yeah. I remember when you when you had it together. I just remember kind of like looking at all those speakers going, yeah, I only need two speakers. Well, you know, I mean, 5.1 was all the rage. I was mostly mixing and I got, I was getting extra work from every client because this is, I've always kind of done this thing. I mean, I, I'm sure you have and a lot of, we all fall into this automatically. You know, audio engineering is so, so difficult, right? I mean, there's so much to learn. There's so much to know. It's, I think it's incredibly challenging, but also can be really rewarding, especially if you like the technology part of it as much as you like producing art, right? Producing music. But yeah, I would get extra work authoring the DVDs. I I would actually work on these films. Then they would come back to me a few weeks later and I would actually author the DVD for them. And I would put the Dolby Digital 5.1 track on there, I would do the ProLogic, I don't remember if it was PL2, encoded stereo mixes. And I was really deep into this stuff. Now, I wasn't working at the level that someone would on like a feature film. Right. But in my own little way, I was kind of on the cutting edge of the latest sort of home technologies, the DVD thing and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I'd go take a class on how to make DVDs because I could see that for each client, I could get another day or two of, of work out of it. And at the same time, you were still working for for Cutting Edge Audio. Oh yeah, oh yeah. This is all just evenings and weekends. Oh man, you were you were really doing a good job about maximizing your time and diversifying. And yeah, I was I was pretty driven. And this is what I meant about maybe something from having a parent die, you know, at a young age was that, man, if I saw an opportunity to make money, I would jump on it. And it wasn't because I was driven to be wealthy. It was kind of because of fear. Yeah. Hey, I'm on my own. I'm supporting myself now. I got to make sure that I see. So this this is more fallout from the death of your father. Is that 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 yeah. fear of of a support system not being there, something you counted on all your life, and then it, one day he's gone. Yeah, and I don't I don't want to turn this into some kind of like therapy session, you know. But I mean, I see now that I would never say no to any job 
And I'm, I'm still like that to some degree, but I'm better, I'm better about it now. And I think it was because I was really always scared about money. Yeah. And I, I think we all are, especially freelancers. And I've only been freelance at certain times in my life, but I think we all, we all worry about money because it's just the nature of the business that we're in. But I would take on these projects and man, I would work nights, I would work weekends and it damaged some of my relationships probably on a personal level. But this is before I was married. You mean your uh, your romantic relationships? Yeah, yeah. Or even friendships are probably neglected because I would just always be working. Yeah. But you know, I learned a lot and worked on a few things that were pretty good and a lot of things that were not that great. That's the indie film kind of world, you know, (laughs) had films that I did complete ADR. So for those that don't know, that's like replacing the dialogue that had noise in it or had, or maybe just didn't like the performance, you know, or something like that. Yeah, I had a couple of films where I replaced almost all of the dialogue for the entire film because some of these filmmakers would be first time filmmakers. And of course, sound would be their last concern, right? They might even spend money, like good money on a DP to actually man the camera and shoot the film. And then they would have their little sister operating the boom, you know, doing the the sound work. (laughs) This is before we had RX and stuff like that. And the noise reduction tools were just not as incredible as they are now. And I would just say, look, man, we can dub all of this probably faster than I can try to repair it all, which is still not going to turn out that great. And these films would go to festivals and people would come up to these directors and say, how did you get it to sound like that? So anyway, that's, yeah, that was kind of my really intensive post-training was the cutting edge daytime thing of dealing with these million dollar mixing stages, you know, and stuff like that. And then I'd go home and work on films at night. It was a really important time for me in terms of developing my skills. Also the soft skills of like managing clients. I had to do it with these super high powered people during the day. And then I had to be able to manage people in a one-on-one relationship, more, more like a recording engineer nowadays would do. So I had to manage people with totally different expectations. Why did you get out of cutting edge? There was only so much opportunity there. At one point I hit the three-year mark there. And I think at, at that time I was the only employee who'd ever been there that long. Most people were there a year year or, or two. Now, granted, the company was only five or six years old, but I could see that there wasn't going to be a lot of potential for growth there. Nothing against those guys. I learned a lot and they were all great to me in their different ways. I loved going to work every day, but then that started to fade a bit when I realized, yeah, I wasn't really going to get ahead financially if I, if I stayed there. And I had met lots of people at DigiDesign. Cutting edge, being in the home territory of, of DigiDesign, over time, I just met tons of people there. And I thought, you know, it'd be great to go over and work on the manufacturer side for a while. Andy Cook, who ran the training program there, called me up one day, kind of out of the blue. Someone had quit a position there and he remembered me from some training event or something. Yeah, asked me to come over to Digi and run, in particular, in those days, run the reseller training program. So mm. basically train all of the dealers on the technical aspects of Pro Tools and and a little bit on sales acumen, you know, and stuff like that, just for the people who are really green, how to demo and stuff like that. And yeah, that was it. So I jumped over to Digi in 2003. It was great. I mean, that was the golden age of Digi as a company. I was there 2003 to 2006, the first time, by the way, I went back later. And I didn't really know, there was no way anyone could know. That was the peak of DigiDesign. I mean, it was almost like they couldn't make HD systems fast enough. Oh yeah, it was on fire. It was crazy. And it was the only thing anybody wanted to sell through their reseller channel. Yep. 
because the numbers were so much higher. It was so much more expensive than anything else that was out there. So they were driving the whole industry, as you know. I mean, Pro Tools was it. That drove all those resellers and everyone who was a pro in the business was using Pro Tools. That was in Daly City, right? That was when they were in Daly City. We had a really neat studio there. I had a huge Pro Control when I first started, and then it became a huge D Control later. And I'd get about a dozen students in every week or two. I'd run them through like four days of reseller training. They would really come away from that, really sort of indoctrinated and and feeling a really strong connection with digital design. And that's what they did. I mean, that was the whole point of the program. We paid all of the expenses. We gave them per diem to come to Digi and hang out in San Francisco and learn how to use and, and again, to some degree, sell Pro Tools systems. You were there for three years? That was three years. And I transitioned during that time to doing more curriculum development, which is kind of what leads to where I am now. Doing more curriculum development was the early years of the AVID Learning Partner Program, like the end user certification programs. They were just starting it. I think we had the 101 book by then, maybe the 110. Those were the days of people saying, oh yeah, well, I'm Pro Tools certified. Yeah. And you still have that to some degree, but I mean, it, it is the most prestigious certification that's out there. Now, what that means, that is obviously totally open to debate. <laughs> what I tell people, my students, or anyone who I talk to about it, I don't think that being Pro Tools certified gets you a gig, but I will say that it may keep you in the running for a gig where your resume might otherwise be tossed. And I say that having worked intern, run interns at a few different places, including when I was at Sony, if we got 10 resumes for one position and four of them had Pro Tools certification, we would toss the other six. The certification didn't get them the job, but like I said, it kept them in the running for the job. Then they had to come in and interview and actually earn the job. But it was a way of kind of whittling down that applicant pool to something. Now, these are students, by the way. I should mention, these are not people who had a professional resume. Right. They didn't have work. They, they couldn't just, they weren't going to get the gig based on work that they'd done. Were you continuing to work at night as you had been when you were at Cutting Edge? So when I went to Digi, I started to wind that down. Yeah. Because the money was better. The money was better. And Film Arts actually went out of business. And that was one of the places where I was meeting all of the people. That was where I was making all my contacts. They made some poor financial decisions during the dot-com boom bought into a building that was really, really massively overpriced and they went under and it was sad. I mean, it was, I think I could be wrong, but I believe it was the largest film, not video. Specifically, they were not about video, right? I believe it was the largest film sort of nonprofit for filmmakers in the country. And there was a real scene for that. I mean, a ton of documentaries and, it, you know, things were being shot on film still and they had the expertise. They had an incredible crew of young DPs and, and, and directors who were on staff there. And there were people like me, you could come and find all these resources. So they went out and that, that's kind of what killed off my, the demand for the work that I'd been doing. Mm. But also I was actually wanting to put the time and energy into what I was doing at Digi. You know, I really loved the job. There was a lot of travel. I should mention training was part of sales and marketing and we would support all the trade shows. So I would go out and wear a different hat. I'd either work the floor, I would teach masterclasses at trade shows, we would do training events at trade shows. So I was going to almost all of the major shows. I'm talking like going to London, going to APAC stuff in, I actually went and did a training in Bangkok. I went to Brazil during that time. So the travel was pretty grueling. And that's yet another reason I, I couldn't maintain those kinds of gigs. 
during that time. You're a creative person. Did you like working in a corporate environment like that? I did there because this was still the digi-design of sort of the 90s. Yeah. Where it was scrappy. Everyone was a musician. I, I personally was never really drawn to the digi-design sort of proximity to the entertainment industry, if, if that makes sense. What I've noticed over the years is that people would stay there longer than they probably should, earning less money than they probably were worth. And part of it was they couldn't, they just couldn't step away from what they felt was a sort of connection to the film industry or connection to the, the record industry. Even though I don't think they really were that connected, but I think that people were, were kind of felt that connection, whether it was real or not. And I've seen it. People would stay there. And I'm not saying this against Digidesign as a company, but from a career perspective, people would stay there longer than they should because they felt this connection to creativity and creative industries that they weren't really necessarily directly connected to, if that, if that makes sense. Right. It was there. It, it let them stay close to those industries without directly participating in those industries. Right. It was a big part of their identity. Yeah. Was being close to those industries. And then to go and take a gig at, you know, a Google or a Facebook or an Apple or a LinkedIn or something like that, then all of a sudden, well, now, now you are just that technician. You know, now you are just that customer service person. Do you know what I mean? I totally get where what you're saying there. Because it's like, if you stay at, at DigiDesign, you're close to filmmaking and music making. But if you go to these other places, you're just working a corporate job. Yeah. And, and so I would say that it, to some degree that impacted me as well. You got out of DigiDesign. Yeah. So funny thing happened. Sony came to me. I'd been out of games at that point for five or six years. I, I mean, I'd done a little bit here and there, occasional freelance thing, mm -hmm. but not much. And Sony, the guy who was the director of the audio programs there, what they called PD Sound, Product Development Sound, came to me and said, hey, we're going to build 11 new rooms in Foster City, and we're going to build 12 new rooms in San Diego. We want you to oversee the construction of these rooms, the installation, you know, integration of all the gear, and then we'll roll you into a position as a sound designer. And I was like, um, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, yes. I mean, how could you say no to that, right? Right. And I'd been out of games long enough that getting back into a corporate game thing that might be a grind. I'd been out of it long enough. I thought, you know what? Okay, I'll go back to that because I'm going to get to do this you know, sort of engineering work at a, at a really high level for six months to a year. And then I'll gradually roll into game sound design, game cinematic post, all that kind of stuff. A little bit of music work, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it seemed like the right time. It was a little bit more money, not, not a huge amount, but a little bit more money. And Sony was really seemed to be at the top of the industry at that point in terms of the resources, the quality of the games that they were putting out and that kind of thing. And yeah, so I did it. I jumped over there. And fortunately, they decided to hire a second person to do that job in San Diego. Otherwise, I would have been on the road a lot for that first year or so, maybe more. So they hired someone in San Diego. So then my only responsibility was overseeing the construction. So working with the facilities people there, the general contractor, the wiring company, which is Matt Levine at Bug-Eyed. I don't know if you know Matt Levine, who I've had became good friends with and have worked with and interacted with over the years. They're, those guys are incredible. So to get a wiring contractor who can navigate that heavy-duty corporate red tape, 
but also knows how to wire a studio the way that engineer audio engineers want it wired is a pretty rare thing. So I was dealing with that. That was again, six months, maybe nine months. Then eventually we finished that and I transitioned into a role as a senior sound designer there and mostly worked on cinematics because I had that post-production experience, that linear post experience. What's funny is that in the game world, you have a very specific type of sound designer In most cases, they are doing sort of in-game sound effects design and implementing that and making the game play and sound great. Right. But then you also have you also have cutscenes like these cinematic movies that play. Oh yeah. And the in-game design guys, and nothing against them, and 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 this is probably changing now, but back at that time, you still had this situation where they really didn't know how to do linear post. They really didn't know how to edit across a lot of tracks with automation and they didn't necessarily understand surround mixing and stuff like that, which I had been doing for a while. So I fell into that with an incredible team there. We actually had a team that just did cinematics and it was headed up by a guy named Mike Johnson, who I actually knew at Dane Tracks back when I was in LA. I'm sure he didn't remember me from that time because I was an intern. Mike had this team and I was part of that in Foster City and the rest of them were in San Diego. So that was a lot of what I did was a cinematic post. And I think some of those, some of the cinematics we worked on during that time really hold up as like some of the best cinematic work that had ever been done in games. And I'm not saying that's because of me. It was primarily because of Mike and the team that he had in San Diego. But I would do the mixes. I loved that part, but that, it wasn't an everyday thing. It was like a game would be wrapping. I'd spend a week or two on cinematic mixes, which was right in my wheelhouse. Because remember I had done linear post, but I'd also been very intensively involved with the products at DigiDesign. Oh, yeah. So I knew control surfaces better than anyone, even even guys who mixed all day, every day, and could mix circles around me from sort of a subjective standpoint. I still sort of objectively knew more about the technology than they did because I worked it. You taught people, yeah. Yeah, it was like you have this like supercar and most people are just driving like 65 miles an hour. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I, I knew it so well that I could just fly around on the thing. Now, I'm not saying that it meant that my mixes were better than somebody else's. That's how I got that job is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they knew they knew the gear. In fact, the console I mixed on day in and day out at Sony, I sold them from my personal studio. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the perks of working at Digi over the years, and I don't know if this is true now, is we got the gear for like pennies on the dollar. Oh yeah, I uh, that that was the the dirty little secret. The employees were buying these multi thousand dollar rigs for like nothing. Yeah, I mean it was it was an interesting time. I mean you would go into someone's office at Digi and they'd have a stack of one nine twos. They'd have seriously ten one nine twos stacked up, and they would be tagged with the day that they had bought them because you had to hold them for twelve months before you could sell them. So then when they hit three hundred and sixty four days, they put the thing up on eBay or they sold it to a friend and you could double your money basically. Wow. Yeah. Well, the salaries weren't high. So diversification within the corporate world, selling the products on the side. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to sampley.app or sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, so then the Sony thing came to a crashing halt, and this is my first experience. I got laid off. They, they wiped out 10% of the workforce in, I think it was 2008, I was there. They wiped out 10%. I was one of the newer people. So a lot of the guys around me had been there for 10, 15, 20, well, maybe not 20 years because the PlayStation probably wasn't that old. Right. I have to say, I didn't feel bad about it. I, it seemed fair to me that because I was one of the newer people that, yeah, when they did a 10% reduction or whatever it was, I was one of the people who was let go. And you know, they told me, look, it's not about job performance. It's nothing like that. And I was hurt and I was really scared. I mean, you know, talk about my money insecurity, like issues. Back to the being scared about money. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, yeah, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I had to break out of that mindset that a corporate job was stable, that a corporate job was the key to success and happiness, which Uh is, as we know now, 10 years later, everyone knows that that's just simply not true. All this time, your your fear of not having enough money, of not being able to support yourself. Had you been saving? Had you been conservative with your money? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when you got laid off, were, were you okay? Yeah, I was fine. I mean, they they gave me probably a month of severance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, things were fine. Things okay. were fine. So what was the next move? Well, so this is kind of funny, but I got laid off on a Thursday. On the way home from Sony with my box of stuff next to me in the car, I started calling people I knew. And- I called up Andy Cook at Digidesign. He said, well, uh, I'm playing golf tomorrow. Why don't you come out and play golf with me? And I said, okay, I'm not, I'm terrible at golf, by the way. I said, okay, sure. I'll come out and play golf with you. Came out. We played around round of golf. He told me about things they were working on where they might need some contract curriculum developers. And on Monday, I was billing them for my time to work on <laughs> the first round of venue training courses, the Life Sound Console. Yeah. They were just getting started on it. It was headed up by a guy named Rob Campbell. He's also a freelancer, Bay Area guy. And I went, met up with Rob, and I started my freelance career. I'd never really supported myself through freelance work. And yeah, Monday morning, I went and met up with Rob. Uh, he showed me where they were with the venue stuff. And and theoretically, that I was billing that time on at like 9 a.m. on Monday morning. Damn, good hustle, man. Good hustle. Yeah, I was lucky that I was in this position where having been at DigiDesign, I knew a lot of people. Having been at Cutting Edge, I mean, these are both places. Cutting Edge and was a networking, it was heaven for networking, right? Yeah. No one was going to beat down my door and ask me to like engineer a record or something. But if I could find a way to kind of spin that skill set that I had of being this hotshot Pro Tools technician and knowing all the hardware and stuff like that, and I'd been training people, I'd been doing that reseller training for all those years and, and managing the curriculum, writing that curriculum and all that kind of stuff. So I developed this kind of weird, esoteric, but apparently valuable skill set of being able to write curriculum for audio products. From that day in 2008 until this day, that's really been what my career has been focused on, is writing curriculum and training instructors to teach that curriculum. And that all kind of happened at that moment. And when I got laid off from Sony, it was like, okay, 
what am I going to do? I was terrified. I mean, no, I was definitely really scared. I'd never been laid off. I'd always left jobs by because it was my choice. Take me from freelance venue training till to where we're at now. Can yeah. you encapsulate that time period? Sure. So I was working as a freelancer for Avid primarily. I wrote a ton of training material. I made training videos and, you know, just did did all kinds of stuff related to training. I also developed some other clients. I was actually doing a little bit of professional video editing during that time, Mm -hmm. which sounds kind of weird, but sort of fell into my lap. To this day, I tell my students, if you want a fallback plan or you want an additional opportunity to network, learn to edit video it is much less difficult than being an audio engineer. I mean, I really believe that. And I don't mean to put down video editors. I mean, obviously what they do is very important and and is very creative. But if you're an audio engineer of some skill, learning how to edit video is pretty easy. And anyway, I won't won't go off too much on that tangent, but it is a pretty easy transition. Mm. And there's more work and it pays more. So I tell my students, you may not love the idea of being a video editor, but if you want to try to be a freelancer and 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 uh, and sustain yourself that way, it's definitely something to to know how to do. Could be an income stream. Yeah, and the rates—I mean, they would give the day rates. I'd get paid for that was more than I ever made for audio. And this is being someone who had very little experience. Huh. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But I was doing that. I was developing other clients and doing different things, doing some freelance tech editing for some of the major book publishers and you know all that kind of thing. So then Avid made me come back. Oh, it made the transition from DigiDesign to Avid, but they were paying me enough as a contractor that said, look, we can't keep doing this. You got to come back on the full time. <laughs> so I did that for a couple of years. I wrote the game audio courses and whatnot. And then about 18 months into that, they laid me off. <laughs> Thanks. They sucked me back in from what was successful freelance kind of situation. They sucked me back in because there was the threat that they were just going to cut me off. And I said, okay, I'll come back. And you know, the money was pretty good. I mean, again, not spectacular, but it was, it was pretty good. And a year and a half later, a new director of education came in and they did some reductions and I got laid off. And then Bruce Tambling from Foothill College called me up. He said, hey, man, I, I saw you got laid off. He didn't say again, but I was thinking that you know, <laughs> again. So that was two times in four-ish years I got laid off. So he said, hey, we have an opening at Foothill for a full-time tenure track teaching position. And he said, go, if you go look at the job requirements, it basically lines up exactly with your resume. And I was like, oh, well, that's interesting. So this is like maybe November. And the job was to start the following September. So I thought, oh, come on, you know what? I'm going to apply for this job. I'm going to start in like almost a year from now. It just seemed kind of ridiculous. So, but I did have the master's degree. So this is one of the keys is that up until that point, Callard shaped me in terms of who I am as a person, but that piece of paper never did anything for me. Until then. Didn't make me more money. Didn't get me jobs that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Didn't do any of that. So then the Foothill gig was like, oh yeah, master's degree is the minimum requirement. And I thought, ha, finally. I have that. (laughs) Finally, I got that, yeah. Um, But they wanted curriculum development experience. They wanted classroom instruction experience. They wanted, you had to be Pro Tools certified. You know, like all these things is like I could tick every box. And I thought, and I'll get blown out of the water by someone with a PhD or something, you know, is what I kind of thought. And uh, I got the gig. Yeah, so I found out like in April, and it was to start still in September. I thought, man, this is this is crazy. You know? What were you doing in the meantime? Took a gig at Apple. <laughs> doing what? 
uh, doing QA and and sort of I don't know some sort of product management type of stuff for the build up to the Logic Pro X update. Wow, I yeah. I don't think I was I, I was out of touch with you at that point. I was unaware that you did that. Oh, it was a grind, man. People were awesome. The people were great. And I got the gig or found out about the gig through a friend of a friend who worked there and they were awesome people, super talented. But my job was pretty dull and the commute was terrible. Mm-hmm. I, because I was a contractor, I had to punch the clock and be there 10 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. or something like that. Everyone else, I mean, all the full-time employees, they could work on the bus they could, uh, on the shuttle, you know, they could work from home. They could, they could do all those kinds of things. I couldn't do any of that as a contractor. I, it's like you didn't have the right security clearance. So it was a grind and uh, nothing against them or Apple, but it, I knew I wasn't going to stay. I was on a six month contract. About five months into it, I said, I'm, yeah, I'm going to go. And that's when I started at Foothill. So it worked out nicely. The food there, by the way, is fantastic. Oh, at Apple? Yeah. That's, I looked, the thing I looked forward to every day was like, going to lunch and having some, it wasn't free. It's not like, it's not like Facebook or something. It wasn't free. So you, you've been at Foothill for a while now. Seven years. Tell me about you and Frank doing Next Point. Yeah. So Frank has had this, this, this corporate entity called Next Point Training for, for many years because he, he, during that whole time from when I first started at DigiDesign until today, he was a freelance curriculum developer, primarily working on the the Digi certification courses. I mean, yeah. that was really how he made his living for all those years. He's really the guru of that curriculum. And anyway, so Frank and I had always worked closely together. I'd work on a book and he'd edit it, or he'd work on a book and I'd edit it, you know, things like that for many years. And then we had this idea about three years ago, Avid, you know, things have changed there and they've downsized a lot. And I think now they're on a trajectory where things actually look really, look really good. But they were not really giving us as much work as we had once been able to get from them, both in curriculum development and in training instructors. That was a big part of what we did. And so we thought, you know what? Let's roll out the AVID style training program, including certifications. Let's do it for every other manufacturer. Hmm. Meaning Logic, Cubase. Yeah. Let's do it for, on the, at the top of our list was Ableton, Cubase, Logic. I think those are kind of the big three along with Pro Tools. And then, of course, there's another tier there of Studio One, Reaper, others, Reason, you know, others that are out there. Yeah. We, one of the first companies that expressed an interest in that was Isotope. And so we've been working closely with them. We still haven't released any, any books for them, but we're working on several different titles. And these are published through an external publisher. We used to be Hal Leonard. Your listeners may not know that Hal Leonard's audio, like pro audiobook division was sold to another company. To Roman and Littlefield. Roman and Littlefield, which is not well known in the audio business, but is a, is a large and well-established publishing imprint. Anyway, so they'll all be published through Roman and Littlefield. We had the first book was a Pro Tools first book. Then now your book was actually technically the second book that we published under this publishing model. Mm-hmm. We just submitted the Ableton Live 101. We're almost finished with a Cubase 101. Uh, we're going to release a whole series of 101 books. We have our own certification system, online system. And so all of those products, whether they're endorsed by the manufacturer or in some cases not, they are still all going to have industry certifications through our portal. And again, I, I don't think, I'm not going to tell you, I would never say that these certifications will get you a job. These certifications will give you an easy entree into this industry. I, I would never tell anyone that. But the schools have been uh, been begging 
for more courses that are, we would, we describe it as sort of turnkey, right? Like you have the book, you have the exercise materials, like the, the session projects and things like that. There's, and there's a certification associated with it and maybe even some training videos and things like that. A lot of teachers, they just don't have the time to develop all those materials. Yeah. They, they, they pick a book off the shelf. A lot of what's out there, a lot of the books on Ableton or Logic or whatever it is, they're excellent books, but they're not designed for what we call instructor-led training, classroom training. They're not designed for work in the classroom. They don't have exercises. You know, to read a chapter about mixing and then not be able to roll right into an exercise where you learn admittedly basic things, but you learn some things about mixing, well, then that burden falls entirely on the instructor who who may not have the time, or in some cases, they may not really have the expertise. Yeah. So there's been a, a lot of demand and uh, we're trying to meet that demand with all these new products. And it's really just starting to get serious traction. Like I said, the Ableton book is coming out, the Cubase book later this summer. And then we have a whole slate of books. So you're going to see over the next year, I'd say at least five or six more books, maybe maybe more. Well, so you've been doing the Foothill thing as a, as an instructor, and just for for the audience, Foothill College is is a is a college here in the in the Bay Area, and yeah. you teach. What are the titles of the courses you teach there? Oh man, we have we have a pretty amazing course catalog. It's it's unlike a lot of the other programs like this, where you would do a traditional music program, right, and then you would maybe take a few courses in studio recording or something like that. Our core courses for our degree are things like studio recording, mixing and mastering, plugins and signal processing, game audio, electronic music production, sound design for picture. I'm probably blanking on one. So th- those are the core classes. These aren't electives that are part of a general degree. These are pretty these are solid courses. Well, they're they're music technology. The program's called music technology. We have a degree, you know, in music technology. It's not a music conservatory type of vibe where there's a couple classes in music technology. It's it's all based on that. We're really proud of what we have. Now, the only the only other place you can get a program like that or a degree like that is at the various, generally at the various for-profit colleges. And nothing against them. I mean, students, obviously quite a few students go there and have a successful experience. But I'm really proud of the fact that we do it at a price point that is not only affordable, but it doesn't leave students with a huge amount of debt. I mean, the idea that you're going to get a degree in music technology or what's often called commercial music, you know, that kind of thing, you're going to come out with fifty dollars or $100,000 in debt, and then you're going to pursue a career in that industry. It's kind of ridiculous, right? Yeah. And, and it's sad to me that media arts education is one of these areas where students come out in a lot of cases with the most debt. And then to try to go into that field is kind of ridiculous. I mean, as you know, I mean, a lot of it is freelance. And when you're first starting out, it's very difficult to make any money. Uh, I was really fortunate that I came in at a time when people could, when you could still get a salaried job. And that was just kind of that era. That was just the time that I came out of school was like that. So- you do the foothill thing, but once again, kind of looking at your past, yeah, you and Frank Cook are doing Next Point on the side. Yeah, that's right. And that's a whole nother business for you. So you've kind of always had not multiple layers of diversification, but at least a, a layer or two happening. Yeah. Well, I, I still do work for Avid. 
You I still, still do work for Avid. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I probably do four or five weeks of on-site training for Avid every year. Plus, you know, we ran into each other the other day when I was going over to Pyramind to do a guest yeah, lecture. Yeah, I was and- going to mention. Yeah. So the other thing I've been doing the last three or four years is teaching the game audio sequence and one sound design for picture class at Pyramind in San Francisco, which is more sort of vocationally oriented, totally different type of student. A lot of them already have a degree mm-hmm. of some kind and they're, it's not a degree granting school, right? It's a certificate program. So it's a really nice contrast to Foothill and it, that's what keeps me kind of motivated to keep doing both. And, and yeah, I think Pyramind is great. Also, I really don't, I really enjoy going to the city one day a week. It's about enough for me. You yeah. know what I mean? How many kids do you have? Two. So the, the work-life balance thing... Do you think you've managed to kind of keep it in check? Most of the time. Most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. If I have a big like book project, you know, something that is sort of stretches over multiple months, yeah, then it can be challenging. Yeah, to find the time in sort of in the cracks to do that kind of thing. Do you still feel scared about money? No, I would say I finally I don't, I mean, I don't know what normal is. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like what, what's a normal degree of I don't know. Fear, fear? Dude, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like the, I'm, I've always been such a late bloomer that I'm just now getting around to being scared enough about money to really be concerned and intelligent about it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always, I think I've been fortunate. I've had a few setbacks like getting laid off and, and, you know, some things like that, but I've been fortunate that I've been able to weather the storm, you know, and a big part of this is just surviving. Right. I mean, there's the quote, I don't remember who said, you know, Randy Tom or somebody like that. There's a quote out there, you know, how did you get to be a big name in, you know, this field or that field or whatever. And then, and the response is something like, well, I just didn't quit. Everybody, everybody else quit. Everybody else bailed out and I kept going. And so I feel like I've kind of gotten to that place. I've tried to stay true to my passion of audio, but I've had to do all these other things. So the choices I made, I think have, have worked out pretty well. I still worry about money a little bit. I'm fortunate like you to have a partner who is successful in her career. Yeah. And that obviously is a huge advantage. That can take the edge off. That can certainly help with the the health insurance aspect of it. Right, right. When I was freelancing, we were on her insurance the whole time. That was just automatic. I jumped onto her insurance. The kids were on her insurance. Like you said, I mean, that, that was key. That was a huge thing. To try to do insurance as a freelancer is, I'm, I know because I have brothers and other other people who do it, it's it's brutal. Yeah, we'll put a link to this in the show notes for Foothill College for the training that you do there. It's good for me as a friend of yours to get this perspective on where you've been because there's been a few holes in my knowledge about where you've been and what you've been up to mm-hmm. and how you've managed to piece it together over the years. So it's pretty yeah. remarkable and very fascinating for me to learn. So thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Thanks, Matt. Eric Kunal here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for. 
giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out with today's show. That includes Anne Marie Plo on the editing, Mr. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his lovely voice there at the beginning. Want to thank you for uh, stopping by. Listen to more episodes, spread the word, and uh, check the show notes for today at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.